Welcome to Bethany Online. We are glad you're here with us for this online service as we worship the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the great living God, the creator of all things. We worship him and we hear from his word, his very words to us. What an incredible thing that is. We're glad you're here with us. We're also excited to tell you that we have set a date for resuming our service here on campus. We are hoping to have a live service June 14th back here on the Bethany campus. Now, there are a lot of details of how that is going to happen and what you need to do to help keep yourself safe and others safe. We wanna encourage you, check your e-bulletin for some of those details. And please understand this, this may change. Uh, we are in an ever-changing world, and the, the details may be altered a little bit. Maybe even the date will be altered. We hope not. But nonetheless, be prepared and be praying for us as we make preparations and get our campus ready to have you back here to worship our great God. For now, though, here we are, and we have the opportunity to sing our hearts out in thanksgiving and praise to our God and hear from his word. And we pray that his Holy Spirit would transform us, do a work inside of us, shaping us, creating us into the people that he wants us to be. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that we have. Lord, what an incredible thing it is to be able to, to meet like this, even though we are apart. Lord, your people are, are here and they want to worship you. I pray, Lord, that their worship would be honoring to you, that it would be glorifying to you, that it would be acceptable to you, Lord. And not only that, that it would rejuvenate these people, that it would encourage them, that it would give them new life, new energy, new enthusiasm to live out the days ahead for the glory of God and the good of his people. We love you. Bless this service, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now let's worship together. Shout your name, shout your name, filling up. 
Before 
He was a man who had it all, money, fame, 
movies, and lots and lots of airplanes. As a young boy, I was fascinated. I even drew a picture of him, entered it in the county fair. I think I got a ribbon for it. I didn't know all that much about him, but his beautiful behemoth that was shrouded under the mysterious glimmering white dome in the harbor, that was all it took to earn my admiration. For ages, the name Hercules has been synonymous with strength, with power, with standalone, stand out from the crowd, heroic prowess. And yet somehow as it sat there, the only thing illuminated in the vast darkness, that name just didn't seem to quite do it justice. Standing 13 years young beneath four of its 3,000 horsepower Pratt & Whitney R4360 Wasp Major 28-cylinder air-cooled radial piston engines, completely unable to take in the vast expanse of this engineering marvel, I was convinced that the man behind the machine must have been a giant of equal size. There was no doubt about it in my mind. This was a man who made something of his life. And that's when dad leaned in and said, you know, Howard Hughes was not a good guy. And in the minutes that followed, the hero in my mind endured a humiliating dethronement. And I walked the concourse of his H4 Hercules, the, the spruce goose, trying to reconcile such an incredible accomplishment with the tragic end of a life wasted. What do your heroes look like? What are they made of? And how is it that you measure their greatness? Who is it that you look at and think, now there is a life worth living? Are they built of incredible strength or beauty or artistic ability? Maybe theirs is the story of rags to riches. They began with nothing, but by determination and hard work, they overcame the odds, achieved the impossible. Perhaps Maybe it was in a moment where all others stood in silence and they stepped forward, they spoke up, they courageously fought for what is right. Or maybe they're the ones who, who persevere, who outlast, who see it through when others give up long before. Or maybe this, maybe they're just people who seem to walk through life carefree, successful, enjoying it to the full. Genesis 36 records the legacy of a man who rose to a level of greatness that few people even dream of. And yet what he failed to value had lasting ramifications that would cast a dark shadow. He was an underdog of sorts, the firstborn of twins and, humanly speaking, rightful heir to his father's blessing. In a moment of weakness, he made the foolish mistake of selling his birthright for a bowl of soup. Have you heard that story? Later on, his heel-grabbing brother would play a grand deception on their father and steal the blessing for himself. Devastated, humiliated, filled with rage, Esau hated his younger brother and vowed to put an end to his life as soon as their father had passed. But that's not the way things would work out. While the cards may have been stacked against him, Esau's life is a testimony to what can be accomplished if you set your mind to it. Now Esau may have made some poor decisions, but Esau was a force 
to be reckoned with. This was a man of strength, of determination, of grit your teeth and bear it innards, who would press on, who would never give up, never surrender. He wouldn't let discouragement creep in or allow circumstances to get him down. No, he would make do with what he had and get on making the most of life and enjoying it the best he could. A 19th century Scottish preacher wrote, Esau was full of the manliest interests and occupations and pursuits. He was a very proverb of courage and endurance and success in the chase. He was the ruddiest, the brawniest, the shaggiest of all the rugged, brawny, and shaggy creatures of the field and of the forest among whom he lived and died. Esau had an eye like an eagle. His ear never slept. His foot took the firmest hold of the ground, and his hand was always full of both skill and strength and success. Esau's arrow never missed its mark. He was the pride of all the encampment as he came home at night with his traps and his snares and his bows and his arrows and laid into the earth with venison for his father's supper. Burned black with the sun, beaten hard and dry with the wind, a prince of men, a prime favorite, both with men and women and children, and with a good word and a good gift from the field for them all. Esau had the stuff that heroes were made of. He was the kind of man that many aspire to be, and few come close to ever becoming. And in the time between Jacob fleeing to the north and then returning some 20 years later, Esau seems to have rallied all of his manly grit and gusto, grabbed hold of his bootstraps, and pulled himself up higher and higher and higher. Now, we don't have uh, an account of his exploits during that period of time because the text actually shifts its focus to Jacob and how God continued to use circumstances to, to chisel an unrefined lump of stone of a man into a man of his own design. What we do have is a genealogy which clues us into what became of Esau and what became of his descendants. In Genesis 36, 1, we read this. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and Ohalabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. Now, Esau didn't let family values hold him back from taking what pleased him. He knew that mingling and marrying oh, the women of the land, that was a no-no. You remember that his grandfather made it very, very clear when he sent Eleazar out to find a wife for Isaac. They weren't to marry the people of the land. As far as the descendants of Abraham were concerned, the Canaanite women were just off limits. But Esau didn't let that stop him. At 40 years of age, he took not one but two Hittite women to be his wives. And we read in, verse, in chapter 26, verse 35, that these wives made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah, his father and mother. Esau 
he was a man who was not going to be held back by obligations or what others thought of him. He, he, he would have been a poster child for the ideology of our day. Don't let anyone else tell you who you are or what you should be. Instead, look inside. Find what makes you tick. You know what? March to the beat of your own drum. You do you. And that's definitely the attitude he had when he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. He knew full well the special significance his family had in God's plan. He knew of the covenant. He knew that it was a really, really big deal. But in Genesis 25, 34, we read, Thus Esau despised his birthright. His birthright meant nothing to him. He looked upon the hopes and dreams of his father and his grandfather before him, and he just tossed them in the dirt and spat on them. That was Esau. You know what? He was hungry. That was all that mattered to him at the time. And the same went for when he met the women who caught his eye. He saw what he wanted, and he took it. End of story. Well, not exactly. When the realization came that his Canaanite wives were causing problems for mom and dad, he also married one of Ishmael's daughters. And from these wives, we read that he had five children. So there he was, in his 40s, having completely abandoned his birthright and his family's values. This was a man who was his own man. And Esau's next move was to pull up stakes and move on to greener pastures. I'm going to get out of Dodge, and I'm going to make it on my own. Verse 6 says, Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau, this is in parentheses, Esau is Edom. Now this idea of the land not being big enough to support both of their flocks, that reminds us of something, doesn't it? It reminds us of Abraham and Lot where they had to separate for the very same reason. But you know, in this case, the size of the land and the limits, that seems a bit more questionable. Is that really the reason? And the reason we have uh, reason to question is because of Genesis 34, 21, where we read the Shechemites thinking that there was plenty of land to go around. So was this just an excuse to go do his own thing? I don't I don't think we can be really certain, but it doesn't matter. Esau just takes off and makes way for his brother Jacob. Notice there's no haggling here. There's no arguing. There's no discussion of who gets what or drawing of straws to see who should get the family's promised land. You know, Jacob, I really deserve this land. You go find some other place. No, we don't see any of that. Esau just seems to gladly give it all up, and he moves on. And from there, he prospers. Esau is now more than Esau. From the very beginning of chapter 36, we see that Esau is also known by a different name. He's known as Edom. 
a name which simply means red. It's mentioned in verse 1, it's mentioned in verse 8, and now in verse 9 we see that he has become the father of a people, the Edomites. The sons of Esau have sons. We read of sons, we read of grandsons, we read of chiefs, we read of kings. Esau's property and his prosperity, it just explodes here. Intermarrying with the people of the the new land he's in, Esau's family, they assimilate, they overwhelm, and then they completely replace all of the native inhabitants. Esau doesn't just have a family, nor does he have an organization. One commentator describes him now as a powerful overlord. His sons are chiefs of clans, and those clans, well, they're all under him. Esau became something more than Esau, something more powerful, something more mysterious, more than just a man. Esau was now Edom. Birthright? Who needs it? The power and renown of Esau was blowing that of his brother completely away. Verse 31 reads, These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. He's got power. He's got wealth. He's got land. He's got people. No wonder he had 400 men with him when he and Jacob had their little reunion. Esau had become a force. What a giant. What a monument of a man. What a testimony of self-made greatness. And what a tragic example of a life wasted and a legacy devoid of lasting value. Rather than find a place alongside and at the aid of his family's part in God's great plan, the people of Esau would actually become its enemies. You know, 500 years later, as Moses was leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, it was the Edomites who would stand as an obstacle in their path. In Numbers 2014, Moses, he sends messengers out begging the king of Edom to let them pass through their territory. A request which was met with a stern You shall not pass. Again, Moses pleads, offering even to pay for any water that his animals might drink along the way through. And again, the message is the same. You shall not pass. And they're met with the assembled army of Edom, which sends Israel packing. You know, that wouldn't be the only time the eyes of the red nation would burn in Israel's direction. Later on, when Saul became Israel's first king, the Edomites waged war against God's people. Long forgotten was any fellowship that Jacob and Esau had experienced as they buried their father together in Hebron. After Saul, David struggled with the Edomites. Again and again and again, they would show themselves to be enemies, to be rivals, to be fierce competitors with Israel. In fact, Malachi 1, 2 through 5, the prophet writes on behalf of God, and he says this, I have loved you, said the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, 
I have laid waste to his hill country and have left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. It's not just Malachi, though. The entire book of Obadiah is an outcry against, guess who? The Edomites. Obadiah verse 18 says this, The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau a stubble. And they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken." You ask, why the animosity? Well, Obadiah clues us in in verse 10. says this, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. What was it that Edom had done to Israel? Well, it was the Edomites who had blocked the way and cut off the fugitive Israelites and drove them back into the hands of the Babylonians. While Israel would be the vessel through which God would bring the Savior of the world, Edom would become its enemy, its tormentor, an ever-present force that would fight against its sacred purpose. All of this tension, though, it finds its culmination in one man, the narcissistic, blood-stained Edomite king known as Herod the Great. Herod could tolerate no threats to his claim to power. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed his two brothers-in-law, his wife, three of his sons. Herod was a man who was consumed with the fear that what he thought was his might be taken away. So when the king of kings was said to be born, he ordered the murder of all the male children two years old and under. And that's when the words of the prophet Jeremiah were brought to mind. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Edom's lust for greatness and this insatiable craving to be number one it, it, it began with Esau, didn't it? It began with this longing for his father's blessing. Nothing too terrible about that. But it continued. And it carried down through his descendants as they struggled against the children of promise. And then it peaked in a strategic and grotesque attempt to slay the Messiah, the Deliverer. Humanity's one and only hope. Was that what Esau wanted? Had he set out for his family to become enemies of God's plan? I, I don't think so. But I do think that Esau's behavior and the choices that he made, they set his family on a course, on a trajectory. He started them down a path. When we look at young Esau through our American eyes, we we don't see a bad guy, do we? 
We see a man who, who just wanted to make it on his own. He wanted to chart his own course. Rather than continue on with the family business, he thought he would be better off doing things his own way. So he bought that soup. So he married those women. He struck out to live in a land filled with promise, with prosperity, with, with people who didn't worship the God his parents worshipped. So what? Was that such a crime? This guy was a success story. He would have made all the covers of the magazines. Mothers would have told their daughters to look for a man like Esau. Teachers would have used his life as a case study for how to make something of your life. And were he alive today, I'm sure his books would be the top best sellers. Esau's was a good life. A man who gained the world. But at what cost? We don't know whether or not Esau had genuine faith in God. Where he is right now, that, that, that's up for debate. And ultimately, it's in the hands of God. But what we do know is that for all that he built up and accomplished, for all the greatness that accompanied his name, and for all the sensual pleasures that he may have jo enjoyed in his lifetime, the Bible remembers his as an ill-spent life. And his, history cast this dim light on the heirs that he produced. Hebrews 12 remembers the life of Esau and its admonition to Christians. It says this, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral, or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I think it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews pairs sexual immorality with Esau's soup exchange. You put them side by side, and both are surrenders to momentary pleasure. Both give up something of real value for something of little value. And both result in a failure to experience God's good grace for something that will inevitably lead to pain. In Esau's case, we, we have no reason to believe that, that he had any indication that his decisions would have regrettable consequences from all that we can tell, he seemed to walk through life ever more confident, ever more satisfied with the choices that he made. If only he had thought more carefully about the repercussions of his actions. If only he had some type of, of looking glass to see what lay out there on the horizon, perhaps things would have been different. You know, it would seem like that it's men like Esau of which Psalm 49.16 speaks. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light.
Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Esau's failure to value what was eternal over what was temporal, that ultimately resulted in a legacy of tragedy rather than triumph. And you know, the same is true for everyone who fails to see that there is more to life than building airplanes or high-rises, discovering new technologies or, or personal dreams or, or making memories or making headlines or having fun or having it all. It's a terrible mistake to live for the pleasures of today in exchange of the treasures of tomorrow. It would seem that as Esau gained the world, he may have lost his soul. If he did believe in the promises of God and the hope that would come through God's people, well, there's no doubt that he failed to pass that same hope on to his children. What a giant! What a rise! What a fall! My friends, don't allow life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to take priority over the eternal hope that Jesus Christ offers. Don't pursue things that have temporal value over those that have eternal value. Paul said in Colossians 3.1, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. He said in 2 Corinthians 4.18 that the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Jesus asked a profound question in Mark 8.36. He asked, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The answer, the answer is absolutely nothing. The old he who dies with the most toys win thing, that's absolute garbage. And we've seen that, haven't we? Over and over again in the past few months as people who have spent their whole lives building, searching, learning, working, amassing, they've lost it all. And for what? That's one of the prolific messages of COVID-19. You can't take it with you. You thought you were healthy. You thought you had so much more in front of you. But guess what? Time's up. And it's gone. Giants rise. And giants fall. What does a tragedy look like? It looks like, it looks like an Esau. It looks like a guy named Howard and countless others who have reached incredible heights and have experienced unbelievable success only to find it all taken away as they step over into an impoverished and hopeless eternity. My friends, don't make that same mistake. Don't trade the eternal treasure that Jesus offers for things that just don't last. A giant of a different sort, a man who, who left it all to bring the hope of Christ to a remote group of people in the jungles of Ecuador once wrote this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
And that's exactly what Jim Elliot did. He exchanged the temporal for the eternal. As the very people he was trying to reach, they violently took his life. You know, Jim, he could have played it safe. He could have stayed at home. He could have pursued a career in architecture like he was studying in high school. He could have pursued a career in acting like so many of his teachers encouraged him. He could have been a great orator as some believed he would be. After marrying Elizabeth, he could have settled down to a nice, normal life. But instead, he fixed his eyes on eternity he pursued a life that would help others to see that they too can discover what is of lasting value. Knowing Jesus Christ, having your sins washed away, being made right with your creator, and having a place in eternal paradise with your name on it. A waste? Not a chance. That man was a real giant. If you have not yet placed your trust in Jesus, if you're still caught up in that rat race, grabbing up as much money, power, experiences, pleasure, or, or whatever in this life, and not knowing what will become of you should your life come to an unexpected end, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to confess your need for forgiveness to trust in Jesus who took the punishment of your sin upon himself when he died on the cross. Trust in Jesus who died but three days later rose from the dead and even now is reigning in paradise. And as you do, step into eternal hope. Would you do that? If you're already trusting in Christ, are your sights still set on things above? Or have your eyes begun to turn uh, by the, the glimmering goods that are here one day and gone the next? Maybe you came to Christ at a young age, but since you've wandered off in search of dreams, in search of reaching goals, or just doing all the things that people do in life, it can be so easy to let the everyday task before us grab up all our attention and prevent us from living in light of eternity, and prevent us from living for God's glory and making ourselves available for His purposes. Maybe this is your moment to do some, some self-reflection, to re-examine priorities and seize what time you have left to pursue His kingdom rather than your own. The great news of the gospel that we need, we need to not forget is that even if you've made a mess of it, there's still hope at the cross. There's still forgiveness available. And God is still in the business of making beauty from ashes. Wherever you're at, remember Esau. Remember the man who seemingly gained the world and the tragic legacy that he left behind. Remember that it is a, it is a terrible mistake to live for the pleasures of today in exchange for the treasures of tomorrow. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, we come before you and we humbly acknowledge that so very often our eyes are turned. They are, they are swayed by all of the glittering things that we might attain in this world. Be it money, be it fame, be it gold, be it relationships. The list could go on and on, Lord. That It is unending the things that can distract us from what is really important. Lord, thank you for Esau. Thank you for an example of a man who seemed to gain everything. And yet it looks like he lost it all. Lord, we don't want to be like that. And Lord, there may be people listening or watching this right now who are, are thinking about their life, thinking about the direction it's gone thus far, thinking about where it's going, and thinking about what will have really mattered when they come to the end, whether gathering up all of this stuff made any difference at all. It doesn't. Lord, help them to see that what is eternal is what needs to be valued. Help them to let go of their tight grasp on all of these other things and help them to turn their eyes to Jesus, to find forgiveness in Him, to find real life in Him, to find real hope, real peace, and a future that is unending. It's eternal in Him. Lord, for the rest of us who are are so easily swayed. We've trusted in Christ, but Lord, it is so easy to get our sights set on other things. Lord, draw us back to yourself. Remind us of our one and only hope. Help us to get our priorities in order. Help us to live all out for the kingdom of God. Lord, may we lose it all so that we might gain it all. We love you. Thank you for your grace Thank you for your mercy. I pray now, Lord, that you would bless these people, that you would encourage them, that you would build them up, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, transform them by the power of your word. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him no other my soul is satisfied in Him alone. Summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame, youth, and beauty hurry 
by. But life eternal calls to us at the cross. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting flight. But I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. And I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him that I confess my worth and my unworthiness my value fixed my ransom paid at the cross and I rejoice in my redeemer greatest treasure wellspring of my soul I will trust in him no other my soul is satisfied in him alone and I rejoice in my redeemer greatest treasure wellspring of my soul and I trust in him no other my soul is satisfied in him alone.